Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of the B-Side Podcast for the Film Stage website. Um, here, as you know, we talk about movie directors and not the movies that made them famous. So kept them famous, but the ones that they made in between. And today, we have an amazing guest on the podcast, someone we are really excited to talk to, a man who's directed some of the biggest movies um, in American blockbuster history, right? I mean, he yeah. has done... He's done Cliffhanger, which we talk about a little bit. He's done Die Hard 2, Die Harder, where you say, can you die hard? And we say, you can die harder. And then just an amazing, like an amazing array of movies. His name is Rennie Harlan, and he was gracious enough to lend a bunch of his time. He's got a new movie out called The Misfits, starring Pierce Brosnan, Jamie Chung, and Nick Cannon, among many others, which, um, as you're listening, is out and available now. So, yeah, Rennie, Connor, as, before we jump into it, what's your Rennie thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I I'm, I was trying to think of what my you know intro to him was. Um, probably Cliffhanger. I feel like I probably saw that movie at a young uh, I, age. I vividly too. I vividly remember being at a sleepover and watching Deep Blue Sea and loving it. So I would bet you that was the first one I saw. Yeah. The other one I would say is I remember I I had only seen Cutthroat Island and I use the term scene very loosely. I had only seen Cutthroat Island once in my life before rewatching it for this episode um, where my... One of my older siblings rented it from Blockbuster along with, I want to say, Robin Hood Men in Tights uh, or something like that. And that, I think, is just like that association is why I remember it. Um, but I think. Yeah. And we, so we, when we talk about Cutthroat Island with Rennie, he's, you know, a little bit. And we, you know, the B sides we, we kind of focus on. And, and obviously, you know, with these interviews, we, they're more wide ranging. But we talk about his first film, Born American, which the story of how that got made is fascinating. And he, and he goes into detail. Yeah. So that's, that's a delight. And then we kind of jump through the adventures of Fort Fairlane, which is hit the movie he made with Andrew Dice Clay, which is a certainly an artifact of its time. And we kind of talk about how. The timing for that movie was interesting, and 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 basically when they were making it, Dice was huge. And by the end, by the time the movie was coming out, you know, public opinion on Dice and his comedy had turned around, and and in a lot of ways, the Dice character is still like you see the comedy. You yeah, know, argument. yeah, we'll, we'll you know, get into it. Yeah. We we get in. We'll get into it after you listen to the interview, and then we we do talk about Cutthroat Island, and we touch on a few other things uh, f- for moments here and there. But but those are the three main ones: um, Born American, The Adventures of Fort Fairlane, and Cutthroat Island. So without further ado, please enjoy our very interesting and lovely talk with one Rennie Harlan. We are absolutely delighted to be joined by an extremely talented filmmaker who's been making big movies, movies of all kinds for, I mean, over three decades at this point. And you have a new movie uh, out right now, which we'll talk about. Rennie Harlan is with us. Rennie, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you for your very nice introduction. Oh, of course. <laughs> no, we were excited. We, we've been excited about uh, speaking with you um, and we've been rewatching a lot of a lot of your movies and there's a lot to talk about. So, but, you know. 
since this is the reason for the season, we wanted to just kind of quickly talk about you have a new movie, you know, coming out and about, you know, as we're recording and as you're listening, listener, called The Misfits, which is uh, kind of, I'd say, like an action adventure heist film. There's a lot going on in it. You got Pierce Brosnan, Nick Cannon, Jamie Chung. A lot of people are in it. Um, Renny, tell us a little bit about The Misfits. Me and Connor got a chance to watch it over the weekend. Just uh, if you want to just kind of give us the tell us what The Misfits is about. Well, it's a script that a friend of mine, a producer Kia Cham, gave to me, and uh, I read it and, and really liked it. Uh, I liked it because it had characters that grabbed me. It had a clever story and and uh, and humor. And I'm not necessarily always known for humor. I've done action and I've done, done thrillers, and but I love. I love comedic material, and uh, and in this case, basically, what the movie is about it's a it's a it's a heist movie. Uh, it's a group of uh, group group of uh, smaller or bigger time criminals who get together to pull off one huge heist. They have to basically go to Middle East and break into a giant maximum security prison and steal a gold treasure that is in the prison, and then break out of the prison with the treasure. And then chaos ensues. So uh, it's uh, it's maybe a little bit uh, in terms of genre. It's a little bit like in the in the kind of Ocean's Eleven world, a group sure. of people doing a heist. Uh, and what I think makes it nice is that it's, there's a little bit of a Robin Hood aspect to what they are doing. They are not just greedy greedy gangsters who want money for themselves. They are actually doing it all for a very good cause, which you will find out when you see the movie. Yeah, no. And it's, you know, it's one of those movies, you know, me and Connor were talking before, before you jumped on, I, I feel Pierce Brosnan is kind of perfectly cast, you know, in this kind of, he, he ends up being the linchpin to the whole plan. And he's the, the guy they need to get to make it all work essentially without giving much away there. And um, yeah, you really capture kind of everything about Pierce that makes him so you know, makes him a movie star. And so I think that among everything else, and it's like you said, you know, Abu Dhabi, the locations, um, they're so crucial to the story. And then the action, which is a good kind of segue into just your whole career, which is, you know, you are one of these guys who have directed action in such a special and unique way throughout your career. And even using it as, like I said, as a pivot back to your first movie, Born American, which um, kind of became a calling card for you, if, unless I'm, uh, if I'm not mistaken. There are sequences in that movie which couldn't have been a huge budgeted movie that are very impressive for kind of what you're trying to do. So if we can just start even all the way back there to Born America, I mean, that's a movie just for the quick context for the listener. You can actually watch it on 2B right now. Um, it's three Americans who kind of cross the border into Russia, you know, before the wall fell and get into some serious trouble uh, without you know giving too much away and um what was that process like kind of making that movie and then kind of what was what happened after it's kind of it's modest success you were able to kind of parlay that into an amazing career yeah it's uh it's a it's a long and winding story but i'll try to keep <laughs> but uh yeah, I was just a kid in Finland who who dreamed of making movies. I went to film school and I was disappointed by film school. There was no money to make movies, so I quit. Started making commercials, writing scripts. Uh, loved American movies. And uh, the idea that I could become a Hollywood director was 
exactly the same as you know if if we said now i i think i'm gonna go and uh migrate to mars i'm gonna live in mars and grow <laughs> right and, right and and i'm still the only person who's ever done it so nobody had done it before nobody's done it after because it's impossible uh but <clears throat> i had a big dream and and uh after directing uh, lots of commercials and that kind of stuff uh when i was about 20 21 year, years old um I decided to start pursuing the dream of making an international movie in Finland. And I got together with a friend of mine and we wrote a script together. And we 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 literally we talked about okay, what are some of our favorite movies? And and a couple of movies uh came up. One was Midnight Express and one was The Deer Hunter. And right. uh and we said, okay, how do we make an international movie in Finland? But it doesn't make any sense. Nobody would believe that there's like some secret agents in Helsinki or car chases around the park in Helsinki or something. Right, right. Uh, how do we do it? And then we came up with this concept of, okay, there's these three American kids who are on a vacation in Finland. They cross the border on a prank to go to Russia. They get caught on a little innocent prank and it leads to hell. And they basically go to a Russian gulag prison camp and and chaos and zoos and uh and and we wrote this and we put all our savings everything we had our credit cards everything we had made in me directing commercials my friend distributing videotapes uh it was literally I, I think he was 22 i was 23 and um and we were able to make about half an hour of that movie and then we ran out of money and uh, and we 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 said to ourselves, what sells? How do we make our mark? How do we wake up people? Uh, action. So okay. So we're gonna blow up stuff. We're gonna burn stuff. We're gonna do some visual things. Uh, make it look good. Uh, make it look bigger than it is. And make it look expensive. And uh, that's the most important thing. And so then we had half an hour of this movie. We put it, cut it together, put it on a videotape, and then sent the videotape everywhere we could think of, basically in in LA without knowing anybody. And uh, and we were just so determined and so passionate and so sure that it was going to work out because we didn't know better. We didn't realize that it was impossible. Uh, it was I don't know. We were like people climbing climbing Mount Everest, and and you just ignore the fact that very few people ever can do it and you might freeze to death or run out of oxygen or whatever. And we just kept going. And, uh, and then miraculously, a few months after we had, or maybe, maybe half a year went by nothing happening. And then uh, this lady who worked for this, this film company, one night uh, in, in her inbox on her desk was this videotape when she was leaving to go home and she grabbed it she didn't know what it was but she grabbed it put it in her bag went home then she she couldn't sleep so she was staying up late at night and and she thought okay i'll pop that tape into the in the machine and see what what this what this is she starts watching it and she gets really into it and it's really exciting and visual and everything and and she's like this is pretty amazing and and she wants to watch the whole movie, but after half an hour, the movie just ends. Hmm. And uh, and next day, she asks her assistant, like, "What the what's this?" And she she says, "I don't know. I didn't, I don't really know, but these like weird Finnish guys sent it and said that it's a it's a movie that they are making." And 
So she calls us up. We go to LA. We go to a meeting with her, and she asks us questions. And we said, well, it's this, you know, we uh, we ran out of money, but this is what we made, and we have a script, and we have everything, and we want to make the rest of it, but we need a little more money. And she's like, sounds like a great idea. How much do you need? Only we didn't have a budget. And we didn't know what right. it was cost and we didn't know anything so we look at each other and we are like trying to read each other's lips to come up with an answer we, we, didn't, <laughs> no. we were there looking for money but we didn't know how much <laughs> so we thought that like how hollywood works is like they'll just tell us how much it is so we're just like well we, and we're so scared if we say too much they're going to throw us out and if we say sure too little, of course yeah. that make and so so then then my friend says like he says like well, we need half, uh, half, and I'm thinking, and I'm then I add million, and then he says, yes, half a million, five hundred thousand dollars. That's what we need. And she's like, well, you can finish this movie with five hundred thousand dollars. We're like, yeah, and we think like, this is a ridiculously huge amount of money. <laughs> and then she says, okay, if you show us a budget and all the, you know, your shooting plan and everything, with five hundred thousand, we'll finance the rest of the movie. Wow, and uh, and now we then have to find out find somebody who could actually make a budget because we had no idea how do you make a budget or schedule or anything, and uh, and we did all that and they gave us the money and we made the rest of the movie in Finland and it was released in twelve hundred theaters in America. It was sold to every country in the world where people watch movies, and uh, we didn't make a cent because when <laughs> they gave us a pile this this thick like a ten inch pile of uh, contracts to sign. And they said, who is your lawyer? We thought we were in trouble. Like, what have we done wrong? Why do you, why, why do you ask for a lawyer? He said, no, but who's going to you know, help you? Right, go, right. Understood. He said, we don't have a lawyer. We don't need a lawyer. Just tell us where to sign. And, uh, and, and this, basically, these papers, they say what, what we agreed on, which is we, we made half an hour of the movie, and you're going to give us 500000 We're going to co-own the movie 50 50 and and that's it and they said oh yeah that's it and they showed some page in the pile of papers that said 50 percent and we were like fantastic we don't need a lawyer we'll just sign this of course it was one of those hollywood contracts where you know we'll own it 50 percent after break-even point of you know all the marketing costs right the, right, blah, right blah 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 we never saw a cent right they, made, right. they, they probably made millions but we we didn't see yeah. one. but that's okay we made a movie, which was a miracle. First ever English-speaking movie made in Finland. Uh, and, uh, and then, just to give you a little perspective of the insanity of the process, was that then the, we were very proud. We had made a movie in Finland. It was an international movie, and we couldn't wait to release it in Finland and everybody see it. And then it went to the, whatever you call it, the censorship thing, where they decide if it's R-rated or PG-13 or whatever, and they banned the movie. Right, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, they the banned the movie because of political reasons. This shows to you how the world has changed. So this was, you know, old Soviet Union, and Finland, that is supposed to be completely an independent country, uh, was really revealed their cards. How how under the Ru Russian influence, Soviet influence, they really were. Oh, interesting. And, okay. and and so it was the first movie since the 1930s to be banned because of political reasons. And it made headlines everywhere. We were on the cover of New York Times. And uh, so it was a great marketing thing for us. Right. <laughs> but it was devastating for us that in our own country, we made this It was banned. Yeah, that's country. such a bummer. Yeah. But, but it was, and it took maybe a year uh, and then they lifted the ban. But 
but it was completely ridiculous. Well, I was, read, yeah, yeah, Renny, I read there was an outcry in Finland, like people wanted to see it, right? Because it had so much success yeah. internationally. So that must have helped get the ban. Oh, definitely. You know, right, right. Yeah. And there was an outcry, pol- political outcry, saying like, "Wait a minute, yeah. is this really true that we? This is how much we are kissing Soviet Union's ass that we we ban our own movies because right. we give negative." We gave a negative idea of prison conditions in Russia. Yeah, and I mean, so so it's like you said, it's an international success, and that kind of great, you know, like you said, not a lot of money ultimately in the grand scheme of things to make this kind of you know movie with a big scope. I mean, it's funny you mentioned Midnight Express and these other movies because as I was watching it, it really feel it feels like what you're saying, like you're trying to pack in a lot of different elements almost to showcase what you guys can do. And it's a smart move. Yeah. And obviously it, 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 it made an impression on a lot of people. So then just to kind of move along. So you, you off of that, you get right prison. And then shortly after nightmare four, which was a huge hit, right? Which fun fact, Brian Helgeland wrote, wrote that script. Who's also gone on to a lot of success as well. So that movie kind of spurred a lot of success, which is interesting. And then, I mean, and me and Connor were just talking about this, you know, your next movie is, um, the Adventures of Ford Fairlane and Die Hard 2 in the same year. And the and obviously Die Hard 2 isn't a B-side. It's a big hit, obviously sequel to a big movie that also was a huge success. But The Adventures of Ford Fairlane was kind of maligned when it came out, obviously, and also in a weird kind of a political way, almost like in a different way, but this kind of the Dice character and all that. But what's funny is rewatching it 30 years later, right? 30 years, yeah. You know, Daniel Waters wrote the script or, or at least did a draft on the script and, and, and he had a very specific, you know, style and there was a self-referential, you know, satire happening and rewatching it over the weekend, uh, you know, it, it, it kind of got unfairly maligned. I think, I mean, what, what's your memory of Ford Fairlane? I mean, I think it kind of works almost even better now in a way, right? I, it, what's your memory from Ford Fairlane there? It's really funny because I, I almost get, well, yeah, I mean, I get the obvious comments on the Long Kiss Goodnight and Cliffhanger and so But I, I get a lot of feedback on Fort Fairlane. Real, oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. It, yeah. And, and it's really like if I ever go to a bar somewhere, wherever, and there's some bunch of good old <laughs> boys having a beer there, and somehow they learn that I did Fort Fairlane, they're like, that's my favorite movie and they want to find and 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 stuff. So it's really like a guy's movie. And, yeah, uh, sure. And I get a lot of that feedback, which really kind of surprises me. And um, when we made it, we had a great time making it. It was it was summertime, and also I have to just put this a little bit in perspective, which is that I had um, after the success of Nightmare on Elm Street. I was uh, I took a job doing Alien 3 at 20th Century Fox and I worked on it almost a year worked on the script developing the script and so for a year I was in this dark dripping a very serious scary alien world mm-hmm. so I quit that movie which was it's it just what I learned from it is that you have to listen to your heart in in your life you have to do what you believe is it's the right thing to do, even if it logistically it doesn't make sense. And uh, I was at a point there where I had no income, I had no prospects anywhere except I had done a hit movie, Nine on Elm Street Four, 
I was on the studio lot preparing third sequel to a movie that, you know, had been directed by Ridley Scott and Jim Cameron. Um, so I was in a great place, but I didn't believe in the script that the studio wanted to make. And I, I finally, I quit without, and I, I felt like, you know, quitting a big movie like this, I'm 28, 29 years old. Uh, no one will ever hire me again, but I can't do this. I can't show up with a movie that is clearly inferior to what's done before it. So I quit. And next day, to my huge surprise, I got, get a call from the very same studio where they were just the day before super pissed off that I quit. Uh, and they offered me Fort Fairlane. And I read it. And it's such a breath of fresh air. It's it's Daniel Wal Waters. Yeah, he, he uh, wrote the script. He has a very specific style. It was funny. It was it was uh, very sort of poppy, pop culture-y. Uh, it was all about clubs and beaches of LA. And it was just a, like a real sort of fun summer movie. And it was a comedy after all the alien stuff that I had been involved with for a year in darkness. So, so I took it with great excitement and I had a fantastic time shooting it. We're shooting on the beaches of Malibu and we are shooting in the clubs of LA and, and, um, and it's just, it's, it was such a fun shoot and, and dice, whatever people think about him, he was awesome. He was, when we started making the movie, he was at the height of his career. He was selling out Madison square garden. Uh, he was the biggest comedian in the world. Then as these things happen, the political climate had a shift and, uh, and all of a sudden he was, he was, by everybody viewed as a as an evil horrible person homophobic and um, right, right. anti-women anti-everything racist whatever you could think of and uh so his his act just died overnight and it happened to be about a week before our movie came out right. and and so it was it was kind of tragic because we really thought that the movie could have been very very successful and that he could have been a movie star but this, you know, things things happen in in strange ways, and and rest is rest is history. But I I had fun making that movie. I think it's it is a fun movie. I get very positive feedback from people uh, right. about it, and I uh, it's uh, it's kind of like one of those kind of crazy cult movies. I I have no illusions of saying that it's of any kind of a masterpiece or quality film, but for that genre and 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 what it wanted to be i think it worked out quite well and uh and people have fun watching it yeah i mean and i think look your your career is so fascinating because you run the gamut of of the hollywood of what you're saying which is like once you're in that system right and you know and look alien theory like you're talking about ultimately fincher takes it he has his own really tough experience that he learned from himself. He ended up obviously having to finish the movie and, you know, wasn't happy with it and everything. But, um, but, you know, I think it's, 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 you're so comfortable talking about it, which is great. I think it sounds like you have a really healthy attitude to kind of, you know, how it can go or you can't control that stuff. It's like, you understand what movie you guys are making, you know, you're working with Dice on set. You understand the type of guy he is, you know, how it's maybe different from his persona and whatnot. And then it just, um, you know, just kind of hits at the wrong time. And I think, look, to a similar to a similar 
degree moving a couple of years down the road and me and Connor were talking about this, you know, this is bringing the action back into it. You know, Cutthroat Island becomes this famous, you know, story of like, oh, you know, you know, money lost and all this stuff. And, you know, um, certainly unfairly maligned it would to go back and read the reviews it just there was a obviously a target on its back because of all of those behind the scenes just what was happening but to watch it now the practical uh stunts action that's happening i mean it's it's an envious movie to watch um because it's not something you see being invested in in the same At way anymore, yeah. and even and even like we were watching you know a lot of you skip trace is a more recent movie but and so even that you know there's a lot of practical in that movie which you know that's jackie chan and johnny knoxville so you have people who are obviously willing to to do that but i remember watching that when it was available a couple few years ago and being that was a breath of, breath of fresh air because it's so not as common anymore so just bringing it back to cutthroat like you know do you get any kind of you know, 25 years later, is there any kind of residual, like people recognize maybe some of the impressiveness of that movie, or is that still maybe a little bit less known at this point? Well, it's, it's, of course, it's a little less known than some of the other movies, but definitely, definitely I've gotten uh, great feedback. And, and when people either see it for the first time or revisit it, they, they, they see what we were trying to make. I, I was trying to make my dream pirate adventure like an errol flynn mm -hmm. type of a movie and uh we had a great time making it it wasn't easy by any means and we had a lot of lot of uh things stacked up against us during the making of the movie but but we enjoyed it and when i put it together and john debney who was a very new composer at that point had done just oh. i thought he went this, made a fantastic score yeah for the score it. is great yeah i think it's yeah. so thank you it's so rousing and and the and the it's I think it's a beautiful movie and we have to remember that it was years and years before Pirates of the Caribbean, and that you have to real, realize how we all felt then when Pirates of the Caribbean came out and it became a billion dollar franchise. Yeah, I was gonna like, like, hey, why is this world so unfair? <laughs> you know, and 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 so yes, I I get a lot of feedback from people saying like, I don't understand why. What was the thing? Why did people think that it's such a piece of crap? Because it's a it's a really fun movie, and uh, uh, you know one of the the top uh, uh, promoters of the movie is Quentin Tarantino. He said in in, oh, right, in yeah. interviews, he said like he loves that movie. So I I'll take that. So so again, <laughs> not you know it's it's not a cultural masterpiece by any means, but but it's definitely I'm proud of it, and I like that movie, and I. Uh, but of course, at the time when it came out and and everything that was written and said, it was uh, it was a very tough time to get, go through it. Is there is there anything like with not even necessarily with Cutthroat, but just even in your career, is there anything where like personally as as a creative lead on these movies, the creative lead, any sort of thing you can look back and go like oh if i had done that one thing differently maybe this wouldn't have happened this way is there it's, it's not an easy question but is there anything that jumps out to you like oh if i had just i don't know anything or is it, you just kind of all kind of mixed together do, do you mean on that movie yeah or? i mean that that movie or any movie where may, maybe the reception wasn't what you wanted where you're like oh if i had just made this decision you think it would have went another way I think it's a it's a totally valid question and a good question. 
and and I always say that the movie making is is a, it's a sum of thousands and thousands of decisions. I know, mm-hmm. yeah. and that sometimes you know people might think that the director is like an egomaniac who who <laughs> like every every detail. You know, here's a napkin, and you know some prop guy brings you this napkin, and it's like. And and you say no, I I don't want butterflies. I want uh, I want little uh, birds, and and people are like, what does it matter? What difference does it make if the napkin has birds or butterflies? But but it it is that as a director, you have to you either care about everything or you care about nothing because you can't sort of categorize things. So like th- these are important decisions and these are not because it's a sum of. What what act what the what the what the line of dialogue is in the script? What actor says it? What are they wearing? How is their hair? In which way are they saying the line? What environment they are in? Uh, all those thousands of little things you have to decide, and uh, and and of course, you know it's it's as a director, it's it's not that you are always right. But you have to believe in yourself that you have a vision, so-called vision, how you're going to tell this story and make this movie. And then you have to follow that. And you have to be blind and, and deaf to, to anything else and relentlessly pursue it. And sometimes you just have to make a decision, even if you are not sure if this is the right decision or not. But somebody's got to decide. So you just have to you make decisions all the time from, from do you want sugar in your tea to how you're going to do this stunt or explosion between that there's thousands of things that you all all, you have to be the decision maker and of course you later on you you might second guess yourself or you might think like ah i wish i had done this in a different way it could have been better uh and like one one just an example uh of, of lessons is is from cliffhanger when uh, when I made Cliffhanger, um, I, first of all, I didn't want to hire Sylvester Stallone as the lead because to me, he, his image as Rambo was so kind of super heroic that in this movie, it, it wasn't what I was looking for. And I was thinking of somebody like Harrison Ford, somebody who would ground it in, a, in reality. However, I was, I was kind of forced to hire him. And I said, okay, in that case, I want to create an, a completely new opening sequence where he fails, where he's saving this girl and the girl falls and dies. I have to strip him from his superhero status right in the first scene of the movie. That way the audience will buy this story. And it worked out actually really well. Then, however, somewhere in the last third of the movie, there was a stunt where where Stallone, he, he, he kind of jumps from one cliff face to another cliff face. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's in, in practically jumps from mountain to mountain. And uh, I thought it was quite spectacular and uh, and people would really appreciate it. We are in a test screening. Everything is going great. People are applauding and loving the movie. You can just feel it in a room. Then that stunt happens somewhere in the last third of the movie. And all of a sudden, you just feel like the air has been let out of the room. And it's hmm. just dead. And, uh, and we are quite shocked. And we are like, oh, no. We, we For like two-thirds of the movie, we thought we had a mega hit. And now it looks like it's a disaster. What could go wrong like this? And then we look at the cards that the people fill out and and uh, and interview them, and we realize very simple thing, which is that our opening scene was so good, and the the character Stallone's character was so well developed in the story 
that the audience really bought him and invested their trust and, and emotions with, with his journey. And at the point when we made this stunt, which we thought like, wow, look at that impressive stunt, people were, felt betrayed and they felt like, oh, I invested all this feeling for this guy and now he's jumping from one mountain to mountain, like what the hell? Uh, so then we had to find a way to cut this expensive, complicated, big stunt completely out of the movie and mm. have him get from one mountain to another in a completely different way. We didn't reshoot anything. We just used some other, other footage and we were able to do it. Uh, and then we retested the movie and it went through the roof and people loved it. So so one one thing that is not not exactly an answer to your question, but but it's just an example of decisions that you make, choices you make, and and um learning to to respect the audience that you know if you're making a marvel superhero movie it's acceptable people fly and they can do anything then they can turn into an airplane and they can turn into anything right. uh, but if if you are you have to establish ground rules with the audience no matter what movie it is could be a comedy or could be a thriller or action movie but you establish ground rules and you build trust with the audience and then you have to to stick to it and obviously, if it's a Marvel movie, then people have to fly because then the audience will be disappointed if they, they see don't see right. the most ridiculously big spectacle of their lives. They, they'll be they'll be let down. But if you're establishing certain reality with the characters and what what can happen, and and you you ask the audience to relate to them as as if they could actually the audience could maybe be in this situation themselves and 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 go through these things. Um, then you can't let them down. They will hate you if you let them down. So that's that's regarding decisions. Uh, yeah, decisions. It's a it's a, my most valuable lesson. Yeah, and you know that opening of cliffhanger. I mean, that's got to be one of the best things you've directed because it's so, you know. And I we we I mean, it's not a B side. Obviously, it was a huge hit, but but we rewatched along with many others in preparation, and we were talking about the tension of that opening. You know it really does make the rest of the movie play, you know, and, and even you, I mean, you see it used in movies that get made today. There's that, the, the Taylor Sheridan movie that with Angelina Jolie is a similar kind of a, of a structure and they, you, that she fails at the beginning of that movie. And it's a similar idea where it's like, you're not going to really buy Angelina Jolie as this firefighter. And that's okay. If you can in, in, inject some, humanity and maybe some failure that's relatable at the beginning and it works i mean it's it, so it's a smart that was a, obviously a very smart decision um one thing uh you know do you find action harder to direct now with all of the capabilities with all of the green screen and the cgi and whatnot and i know you still try to employ practical as we just talked about but is it just a, is it a completely different art form at this point, 20, 30 years later, or how do you approach it? Or how is there any difference, I suppose? It is it is quite different. And and uh studios are very wary of making that kind of movies that that were made in the 90s and earlier, uh, because they they believe that the only way to grab the audience is that you have to go all the way and you do just have to blow them away. With spectacle that is bigger than anything ever seen before, and and hence hence the the comic book movies and so on, and it is it is a kind of a different art form, and uh, 
and I find myself missing missing the the little more uh, realistic films. And I I encounter a lot of people who say the same thing that they are kind of tired of the digital digital stuff and and uh, and that even the audience, even if it's done with tens of millions of dollars and really well. They, they do sense when they are watching actually a, an animated sequence mm -hmm. instead of a real sequence. Right. Digi doubles, digi doubles flying every, everywhere in car chases, even cars are digital and so on. So uh, it is, it is very different and, uh, and, and there aren't, but, but there aren't really budgets except for, you know, if you're a Marvel movie or, or something huge like that mission impossible or, or 007. Otherwise, there aren't really budgets to do that kind of stuff on on other action movies, and then then you you're in a weird situation because you are in a way you are comp competing with the spectacle of these giant movies. You're kind of wrestling in the same league, but you are not going to be able to to create anything like that. So so then you have to try to rely on the characters and the reality and the emotion emotional involvement of the audience which is pretty much basically doing doing what used to be done uh so right. so they they are they are almost like like they're in, in totally different uh universes and then then you look at to me what what's interesting is then you look at some really low budget horror films that can be gigantically successful and create franchises and you really realize that it's it's not necessarily about the spectacle it's it's about the audience feeling something getting involved and feeling something if you can scare them it can be the most simple simple uh small movie but if it's if it's scary and it gets you emotionally involved it can be a giant hit yeah and, and we should say i mean horror is, is big in your career throughout obviously you know like you, you you're you're impressed i mean you've done a million you touched a million genres, but, you know, I mentioned nightmare, obviously. And then, you know, you did, um, prison was, was right before nightmare. And then even the exorcist, the beginning, which has its own crazy production story, obviously with the Schrader version, and then you being brought in, um, and then the Schrader version getting released after, which is, I don't think that I've ever heard of a Hollywood story that ended that way, where it's like, it's just the most insane um, and then yeah. you have, I know you have Refuge coming up, if, if I understand correctly, with uh, with Jason Fleming. So, I mean, you're totally right. You can really dig into characters, especially now you're seeing it with the Blumhouse movies and whatnot. Um, you get more, you get more uh, rope, you get more bandwidth to play with character in those movies, probably because the budget's lower, right? Yeah, exactly. There's. There's kind of very little in between if you think of studio movies. There's the giant movies, and then there's the tiny movies. And those kind of movies that were being made a lot before, uh, I mean, you almost have to go to like 70s or something to think about those kind of movies that are somewhere there in between that nowadays would cost like 30 million to make or 40 but million. Even like but that. even like the the Exorcist, the beginning, you probably wouldn't be able to get that budget now, right? Whatever, like whatever that, because even that was, I would imagine, even more than you know, if they did it again, yeah, yeah. movie, yes, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you about, just because it was interesting, was, and I wanted to make sure, are you so this Inspector 
Palmo movie. Is that going to happen? You think because that's like the Finnish detective character. It's, it yeah, sounds that's like so a... interesting. You, you've really done your research. I'm thank very you, impressed. thank you. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Inspector Palmo is is a series of movies that were made in the late fifties, early sixties in Finland, and based on on books that are really beloved books. And uh, you could you could kind of compare him. Maybe closest comparison would be like like Hercules Poirot right, right, in right. Agatha Christie's books. This kind of a uh, man in his sixties uh, with a sarcastic wit and 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 very sharp instincts who solves mysteries, solves murders, and so on. Um, and these movies are the most successful, most beloved movies and books ever in Finland. And uh, and and I grew up watching them. Everybody's seen them. Every single person in Finland has seen them ten times. Uh, and uh, and it's been a lot of people's dream for years, for decades, to reboot this series. However, the author has uh, passed away a long, long time ago. His family uh, has uh, had the rights to the books that the movies are based on. And uh, they have made a, they have made a decision 30 years ago that they will never let anybody touch this material again. They, it's, it's, it, it was once made great and, and will never be done again. And, uh, and so a lot of producers and directors have tried over the years and the answer has always been yes. I got lucky, I, I asked them and they said, well, to be honest, they said, well, if Rennie Harlan wants to do this, that's a different story. Love it. Uh, and and then then we we made a deal, and we are working on the script right now. I'm actually, literally, now that I finished shooting my other movie, I I'm going to continue writing the script, and we'll be shooting it sometime uh, early next year. But uh, yeah, that's kind of a dream project. It's a period movie. It'll take place in the '40s, and uh, and be very much like to me. It's it's. Uh, in the in the vein of uh, Orient Express or or uh, uh, Death on the Nile, that kind of a movie. Cool. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I was just reading about that earlier today, and just sounded like yeah, like you said, has to be a passion project for you, just because you know. I mean, yeah. I imagine. Um, so I know we're we're kind of coming to the end. You have that coming up next, um, Connor. Was there any final things that we 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 miss you want to touch on quickly before we? No, no. Uh, thank you so much for for taking the time, Rennie. This has been been super cool. Um, as Dan said, you know, you've done a career that's kind of run the gamut. Really, um, really uh, great to talk with you guys, and and it's it's very it's very impressive when you see it. You know, when you're talking to people who love movies, who know what they're talking about, who've done you know, gone into trouble of watching my movies and talk about <laughs> them and analyzing my career and everything. It's a uh, all I can say, it's, it's impressive. I, I, I give you all my respect. Thank oh, well, thank you. Thank, thank you. you. I mean, hey, you're, you're the reason we're doing it. You know, people like you making all this, all these movies. So we thank you right back for all the, all the impressive work. And good luck with the rest of your day. And good luck with the Misfits. And uh, thanks, thanks again. Great. You guys have a great day, too. Well, there you have it, folks. Rennie Harlan, gentlemen, uh, very open to talk about many things. Um He's kind of he's run the gamut, you know, like, he's yeah, I kind of more than I even just looking at his filmography, like more than I had thought, you know. Um, yeah. You know, the misfits. So like we said, it, it's that's a movie that I think is representative of kind of the point he's at in his career. And we talk about it a little bit where this is a guy who 
did so much practical action and watching the misfits there's like a market a marketed compromise in yeah. terms of cgi solutions right maybe a little bit less action in favor of kind of comedy and character um i think some of it works i think some of it doesn't um i think like i said this in the interview pierce brosnan pierce brosnan is is utilized perfectly in the misfits and i think a sneaky thing about rennie harlan that's underappreciated, I'd say, is, is I do think he gets some really good performances out of his actors. And I think a good, and we didn't even talk about this with Cut the Island, which I was like laughing about because it was such an important thing in the rewatch to me, is the Gina Davis performance in Cut the Island is so interesting. And the yeah. subversion of gender roles in 1995, even today, feels progressive, where like Gina's character, Gina Davis's character's character, Morgan Adams, is the prototypical masculine hero and in a lot of ways the matthew modine william shaw character is the damsel right in a lot of ways and like and like maybe more of like or like a damsel come femme fatale type of thing i also yeah. think too like he just it's he's got that thing that i think uh it's it it's that thing that I think makes stu working studio directors like himself, right? Like I, th I think it's a thing that maybe studios know too, but he does have an ability to kind of make a compelling movie star out of, I don't want to say anybody, but, but take for instance, even, you know, not one of our movies, but Thomas Jane and deep blue sea, right? Like, like people who aren't even necessarily, matinee idols in, in or movie stars in the traditional sense right they're not all bruce willis they're not all sly stallone but even just having this ability to put somebody like thomas jane front and center along with saffron burrows and like make a relatively compelling uh adventure movie out of it um i think you know there's there's i think a hidden talent there to to your point um, yeah I, and i think you know it's funny the things we didn't get to and i kind of mentioned it there at the end is I wish we had talked more about The Exorcist at the beginning, because if you don't know that story, basically that was a sequel to The Exorcist that Paul Schrader directed that was called Dominion. And the studio saw the cut, the Schrader's cut, and they basically were like, oh, no, we can't release this. Yeah. And they hired Rennie Harlan to come in and basically reshoot some stuff, repurpose other footage. And he made an, a movie. He made another movie, and it was called The Exorcist, The Beginning. And it came out, and it performed, you know, I think, like, for what it, for what it was, you know, Scars, Stellan Skarsgård plays Father Marin. So it's like a prequel, literally, if you remember The Exorcist. That's the Max von Sydow character, I believe, right? So he just makes a new version of the movie that comes out. But then the craziest part is then the studio goes well you know what we have this other movie and you know and the the rennie's version a little bit underperformed why not just why not just squeeze all of the blood we can out of this stone and they release schrader's version called dominion prequel to the exorcist i think like six months after it's like the same you know it's kind of the thing it almost should be taught in film class in a way where you could show someone two versions of a movie i mean i you know yeah, i don't know i can't remember how different or not different they are you know i'm sure they're different enough it, but it's it, and it's i mean i think it's indicative of you know that movie it's indicative i don't it's been a, a long time since i've seen i've seen both of them it's been a long time since i've seen dominion my memory of that movie is that it is also not the best 
but it's like a maybe l- a little more cerebral. Or yeah, something. it's like a, it's like constructed and collected a, a little more interest in it. You know, maybe a little more non traditional way. Um, th- that's my memory of it. But so, which is to say, maybe something you would expect. You know, a slightly more Hollywood or slightly less Hollywood horror movie from someone like Paul Schrader, right? Yeah. Um, which to me totally tracks. Yeah. I, I wish we could have gotten into that a little bit more with him. He did, you know, he did go into the bit, uh, about alien three a little bit, which was, I thought interesting. I think, yeah, which yeah. I had forgotten about, or maybe didn't even know that, that he was supposed to direct alien three. And then I, I guess I knew Fincher came in late, but I don't know that I knew that Rennie Harlan was the one. Cause at that point I, he, you know, yeah, I mean, he put, he frames that right near Ford Fairlane. So that movie's got, you know, it's got another two years in development hell, so to speak. Um, but yeah, I mean, and so just bring it to the beginning, right? You know, so Born American, we talk a lot about it in the interview, as you heard. It's an interesting movie. It's a curio of the 80s. You know, he, you know, Rennie kind of says it in the interview, which I appreciated. It's a mishmash of like, you know, the two movies I thought of were Red Dawn and Midnight Express because yeah. it kind of starts like three kind of punky Americans on a dare cross into Russia during the Cold War from Finland and kind of through their own ignorance, they like come upon this village and like it's like a mix of bad timing and bad judgment because this murder has been committed, this horrible murder, and they get accused for it by the guy who committed it, basically. And then they burn the town down and like trying to escape. And I think I, it's like, it would appear a lot of people die. It's like a very crazy opening and then they get caught and then it becomes a prison escapee movie. Right. Which that's where yeah. it feels like midnight express, midnight which if you don't express. Yeah. midnight express is the, um, Alan Parker movie direct, uh, written by Oliver Stone in which it's based on the true story. And an American tries to escape a foreign prison and that was like the original of like, you know, I guess Papillon is kind of like that too, but that's like yeah. a little bit different. But anyway. Yeah. It's, so I mean, it's, it's definitely, yeah. like you said, it's a cure. It's very Reagan-y. Lot, yeah, very reagan I, I was going to say like any, you know, this isn't, I mean, it's disparaging, but it's not specifically to this movie. I think like a bevy of movies from that time period, it, you know, it feels kind of propaganda. I think it does. I mean, from a plot standpoint, it does at some point sort of, uh, implicate and indict this the the American you know the CIA a, a oh, little, sure, a sure, little sure, as sure, well. Sure, so yeah. it's not, you know, it's I think it tries to some some you know maybe tries to smooth over some of those more uh overtly Reagan era things. I, I don't know if it hundred percent succeeds at doing that because it does it very much feels like uh, like you said like Red Red Dawn, like the second half of the movie as they've constructed their escape and are sort of executing it that's where it gets red dawn right like that's where it's like young people right. fighting soviet soldiers and that kind of thing um but it's got chuck norris's son yeah mike norris yeah. and and you know it's funny like for the way he describes it you know you hear this i i look i appreciate this level of earnesty from these filmmakers and i feel like in the interviews we've had we've gotten a lot of that like alessandro nivola right yeah, Deion he's, Taylor. I mean, he's very he and he's even he said it in the interview. I mean, he does, the nice thing about him, just at least as the conversation goes, is 
he doesn't seem to have illusions, right? Which is right, you know, right, right. So, um, yeah, I think I think that I think that's helpful, and I think it's just it is funny because I uh, what I was was wondering, and I didn't want to go too deep into it, but like, so it's Chuck Norris's son. And if you read about it, it seems as if he replaces Chuck. No, like Chuck Norris is going to do it and the son replaces him. I have to wonder, like, what did they do? Like, did they like rewrite well, the script? Because like, I don't. How yeah, I mean, track, I, we, I guess you're, we should have asked about it, but it was it's you know, we're trying to cover all the movies we can. So it's hard. I mean, I would have to think it's just. Maybe there was a moment when they got to L.A. and they were going to get more money. It became a thing of like. And, and granted, they they come across an older character in the gulag who like helps them construct their escape. Right. So part of me was wondering, like, oh, was this character Chuck? Maybe Norris? that was Chuck right? Norris. And yeah. then, you know, but that's because yeah, at that. Yeah. At that point, Norris. You know, was a star. You know, what I mean, you, this right, is during right. this is around the time of Missing in Action, and you know those types of movies. Um, I have to wonder too how much that even tracked because it's like if if the deal that they had made was five hundred thousand dollars, like you're not also getting Chuck Norris for that, right? Like, right? Yeah, I, I mean, I it, it would have been yeah, it would have been good to get clarity on that from uh, him. But I think you know, the story of them getting it made and being in the in the uh, in the office and not knowing like you know having a concept of, I mean, that as a producer who makes budgets that, that stressed me out, but also I, I kind of understand, um, I get that. Like, that's yeah, not, an uncom- good- you'd be surprised how often it's like, Oh yeah. Like, yeah. Like a million to make. And you, you're like, Oh, well you don't actually, you know, yeah, you don't actually know that. Do you? Um, but that's born American. I think it's a nice primer on what will be the rest of his career. We kind of mentioned it. He does a couple of horror movies after that. Nightmare 4 is a big hit, which he mentions. It leads directly to Alien 3, which goes away. Obviously, he walks away from. And then Ford Fairlane and Die Hard 2 in quick order. Um, and, you know, look, the Ford Fairlane thing, which is our second B-side ostensibly, the thing that I was saying, and I said this in the interview, it's written by Daniel Waters. And I think it's like, I love Hudson Hawk. Okay, Hudson mm-hmm. Hawk's a favorite movie of mine. And I love it because of the Daniel Waters script and the Michael Lehman interpretation of it. And mm-hmm. if you know Heathers or if you know Batman Returns, right, right which sure. are like the more successful Daniel Waters scripts, it's they, all four of those movies have a very specific yeah there's feel like a, to that. there's like a punchy zaniness to it a and ma- then you know madcap energy and so fairlane is like that but the thing that they're adding is this like performative misogyny yeah and 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 everything homophobia and, and all this other stuff and i think this is where you thread a needle here and it's like i certainly don't love ford fairlane i think a lot of that stuff is obviously tired just even even though it's an act it's mm-hmm. it's just not funny right like uh unfortunately but it's funny to look back at how it was maligned and kind of think to yourself i mean and granted look hudson hawk was maligned too so it's not like yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah you know it's kind of the bloom had the bloom had fallen off the rose for daniel waters at that point basically and even even batman returns right people didn't... which is beloved now yeah was basically maligned at the that time. is to say to your point it's 
you know, and I'm not trying to overpraise Ford Fairlane, but there is an ahead of its time kind of thing. Like, I think that, you know, if you take the because it's in we we sort of said this in the intro a little bit, it's basically Andrew Dice Clay as the Dice Man as Ford Fairlane. Right. Like it's. Well, yeah, it's like Ford Fairlane is the Dice Man. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The only difference is he's a private eye, a rock and roll private eye who like used to be in a band and is like has inroads into the music industry. But the the brand of of energy and comedy and all of it, it's all the Dice Man. Right. So if that's not your cup of tea, understandably so, you know, it's it. The movie doesn't work. Right. And I think, and I'd mentioned this to you off mic, like, I think if this movie maybe gets made with someone, even at the same time or like a little later with someone like a Nick Cage, who is maybe bringing a zany energy to it uh, and doing this rockabilly detective thing, like it's the general concept of the movie, I don't think is the problem with the movie, right? Like the idea idea, in almost a singing detective-esque thing of like, a detective who knows he's in a detective story. Yeah. Who knows he's in a detective story. Who's adjacent to the music industry and is also a singer like that. All that I think could totally work on paper. And it, I mean, the character itself came from Mac, like a magazine comic. Right. So it, it makes sense that someone like Daniel waters takes that and tries to kind of maneuver it into a thing. I'd be I'd be curious to know at what point in the script or what point in that the you know the actualization of the character on the page like where dice comes into it right like yeah. as far as like I have no well, look, concept like, of that character outside of this movie so like it's hard it might be hard for a lot of us I mean I guess depending on your age it might be hard for a lot of listeners to understand like Andrew Dice Clay in eighty nine and nine in like I, I really the late eighties I think. There was a moment where, I mean, he, I think, is the first comedian to ever sell out Madison Square Garden. Like, uh, yeah, he two, was... And two, and two nights in a row. Yeah. Like, he just became yeah. this, like, very 80s, like, fuck PC culture thing. Mm-hmm. And by all accounts, you know, Dice wasn't the Dice Man. And this has been kind of covered now. Like, where there's been, like, a Dice reappraisal, like, the, the man, not the character. And, I feel like, he's had to kind of say, like, look, it wasn't me, right? It was a, it was this character I played and everything. So it's like, I think with all of that context, it does make Ford Fairlane a little bit more watchable. But, yeah, it's like one of those things, at the end of the day, those jokes will just never be funny. Yeah. And that's just unfortunate that they kind of, they're, they pepper through. You know, where he's, like, calling women stupid and stuff. And he's doing it with his tongue and his cheek but you're still like eh, okay buddy and like, it's a different i feel like it's a different i don't know if this is such a random reference uh maybe not i don't know do you remember the cartoon show johnny bravo of course yeah. okay yeah i was thinking about that where i was like oh it's like a lot this is like a live action cartoon and it's you know whatever it's offensive and it's whatever and i was uh, first like johnny bravo popped in my head and i was like yeah but like the difference there because it's a similar kind of it's like oh what if you had a character who wanted to be Elvis and was like a big misogynist. But the difference there is like Fort Fairlane is never really made to be a buffoon or made to be like, he's, he is quote unquote cool all the time. Right. And he's like always in the right. And he's like a hotshot. Right. right? And I think that's, I, 
I think you could probably even still make the, you know, at the time you could have maybe made the movie with dice, maybe even subverting the dice man character by making people be like, yeah, you're full of shit. Right. Like there, I think there's a way to kind of navigate the movie a little more successfully. Cause I don't like even watching like, you know, I was like 20 minutes in and I was like, I don't really hate like the aesthetic of the movie. Like, do you know what I mean? Like no. I kind of, again, that madcap and the sequences. Kind of yeah. The sequences are, yeah, the direction is good. The sequences yeah. are compelling. The yeah. finale, you know, at the Tower Records Superstore like offices is awesome. Yeah, like, yeah. So and like, and I think this is a good segue into our final B side. But like, yeah, you know, say what you will about the reputation of some of Rennie's movies, the money's on the screen. Like, mm -hmm. uh, and I think you know he has his success with Cliffhanger, which he had that fun little anecdote about. Um, after you know the uh, couple years after Ford Fairlane, right? Because um, he has Die Hard, he has Cliffhanger, um, and then he basically gets to Cutthroat right before he gets to you know uh, Long Kiss Goodnight, which I believe he was prepping while they were making Cutthroat. Um, and Cutthroat Island, I mean, you know, listener, I'm sure you know about it at least in reputation, but you know, essentially. It's it's from a ratio standpoint, it's the biggest box office bomb of all time. Is that I'm not sure if that's still. True. No, I think I think it's I think it's like in in like in in percentage in like that, that's what I'm saying in like because it made 10 million and, and it cost it, like 198. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's I think it was like a reported 98. And then depending on what outlets you read or whatever, some say it's rumored to have ballooned to like 115, which even by today's standards, 115 million dollar budget for a movie that's that is not. You know, I don't think. Still, well, but nineteen ninety five. Yeah, yeah, nineteen ninety five. Yeah, do the, and, do and, the math, and, I suppose. And but. the basic gist is, Kuroko Pictures was going under, and they kind of did, they they were making a Schwarzenegger movie at the same time. They pulled out of the Schwarzenegger movie. They took a loss, and they just pooled all of their finances, all of their debt, all of their leverage, and they to essentially approve a $60 million budget for Cutthroat Island, thinking this is the thing that could potentially, you know, either save or kill their company. Mm -hmm. The budget balloon they knew was the one shot, so they figured out a way to find, find the money, as it were. But they had, you know, and this was made much of at the time, they had trouble casting the lead for the male lead, and it became Matthew Modine. I think Modine kind of got unfairly criticized for its failure like like he wasn't a big enough star for the movie to be a success which, essentially which, which feels I, I think it's unfair because i think he does exactly what the movie asks of him like i don't think you yeah. know I, I don't and look it's and it and it's and it's squarely gina davis's movie yeah, I think yeah. that's and, like another and thing that's like part of the to read about it and we'll i think we'll link to some of the things you can find about it it's a fascinating yeah. read because it's like it is insane like the production of it sounds insane but yeah, I, basically the big thing is at one point it was Michael Douglas, and that I think was their linchpin for a while in getting it made. And then yep. to read about it, it would seem that as Gina Davis was getting a little bit positioned, the character was getting positioned a little bit more front and center, Douglas basically drops out, and then it goes through a line of like, uh, you know, you could, if, if you were to read about it, you would see the who's who names, right? Like it's, 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 it's all like the, 13 names. And it's all you the know, people. It's like it's Tom all the, Cruise, Keanu Reeves, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, et cetera. all yeah. the people you would suspect. So, and it gets, you know, and they get Modine. So, I, 
while I think it's a little mean to say he's sort of like the bottom of your barrel at that point, when you look at the names that they went through before getting to him, I I suppose that is for the time true, right? So I think he kind of gets to your yeah, I agree with you, Dan. I think he kind of gets unfairly maligned. In well, look, it's a fun, it's a fun performance. He's he's clearly made up to look like Errol Flynn. Ren even says it, them, it, this is his yeah, Errol Flynn the, movie. It's the Seahawk. You know, it's Captain Blood. It's the Seahawk. It's yeah, it's, yeah. The, it's the Seahawk and Captain Blood. It's a treasure. It's a treasure adventure, right? There's a treasure map yeah. that that Morgan Adams, Gina Davis, is gifted by her dying father, and there are like two other components off, to off the of map. His, his scalp, off of his scalp, which I thought was actually kind of yeah. creative. And then um, I'd forgotten that from whenever i saw it first it's, and then like, it was so great every time they pull it out i was like oh that's gross <laughs> like and then like her uncle is the villain frank langella who like has another piece to like find and cut the Rhode island and the treasure yeah. on the island and it becomes like a race to get to the island and there are sword fights and there are fights on the ships and there are practical ships and, and like you know bringing back this eels. thing yeah and like yeah. bringing back this thing of the money's on the screen and like this isn't something you see that much anymore this is i think a great example yeah. with Rennie where it's like what's funny is like as i say this i'm thinking about deep blue sea and how there's some amazingly aged but also fun cgi I, in deep well, blue I, sea. no but i there's there's a ton of like i mean great you're, practical yeah stuff and you're thinking like i mean think about deep blue sea like the water scenes like it's all there's, water there's a mix of real sharks animatronic sharks and cg sharks right so even if the cg is kind of aged bad like i guess that's my point is like it's all it's all there and like i i suppose maybe this is more because like you and i are a little more production savvy i suppose so like i can break down where that money goes if you're showing me a movie to to a degree right like and when i and when i when you know to bring it back to cutthroat like i said this to you the other night like when i rewatched it like there's a whole pirate they built two whole pirate ships that fight in the water yeah and like it's a good sequence and like one of them explodes and it's just like, yeah, I don't know. They blew up that. Well, and, 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 and Rennie, like, Rennie is totally right. It must've been disheartening only eight years later to see yeah, Pirates of the Caribbean explode even, because I don't, I mean, honestly, <laughs> I guess you would say Pirates of the Caribbean is a better film and I think Gore Verbinski is an amazing artist, and I think he's an extremely weird artist. And I think the first those first three Pirates movies, which have also buoyed yeah, sure. over years, and people like them, and yeah. they should, and they're weird. I don't know that it's much better. Like rewatching Cutthroat Island, I mean, these are just fun romps it, in the sea. Like I don't, 100%. you know, if and look, the other thing too is, and I don't know if this is better or worse now than it was in 1995. The gossip coverage stuff with that stuff, like when there was bad production news behind a movie, it really like if you go back, I mean, that stuff we, really poisoned we t- movies. You know, we talked about that on our Pakula episode where we talked about Devil's Own, where it's like you, very you know, similar. Yeah. The press just kind of gets out there uh, in terms of this, you know, like you said, bad production coverage. And. And it's basically, you know, it, I think like we mentioned with Rennie, like the movie just gets a target on its back. Right. And it's not it's like just, yeah. as soon as that stuff gets out. And so I it makes perfect sense to me when I put it in the context of 95. But yeah, I don't know. And like, I, you know, I, I think I even mentioned this to you off mic, but like the Roger Ebert review is kind of interesting because it feels like a really measured review compared to like some of the other backlash. Cause he basically is like, 
yeah, some of the performances don't land, but like it is a technically co- like very competent movie with some really good stuff in it. And I think that's like I feel like that's like an accurate assessment of the movie. Like, I don't know if Gina Davis's overall performance is like knocking it out of the park, but it's cert- I don't think it's bad. And same thing with Modine. Like, I think they are no better or worse than, say, Orlando Bloom and Kira Knightley working their way through pirates. Well, and right. also, and also, like bringing it back to like Rennie knowing actors and maybe characters, and even like Hollywood maybe more than he gets credit for. Like him positioning Gina Davis as action heroine in two movies in a row, right? Long Kiss Goodnight and um, obviously and, this and movie like Cut a good, and like a good action star in both movies. Right, right. Yeah. My point is that's like twenty years ahead of this like atomic blonde gunpowder milkshake you know, yeah. blah, blah, blah. Like it's, it's a little forward thinking, even, even though that's depressing to think about in the nineties, there is, a, I mean, obviously, and you have Ridley, I know that. And you have Linda Hamilton. I know that, but I'm saying there are, there aren't many prototypes. So the point yeah. is like, and, and he's, you know, a, aside he's from your James Cameron, yeah. you know, aside from your James Cameron and Ridley Scott. Right. And like funny to think about with the alien three element, but like that is a risk he's taking and, and, and one that is, forward thinking and then similarly and this is going to sound silly we didn't even get to talk with him about this but like he 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 puts john cena in 12 rounds right that action movie from the late in i think it's 09 yeah which like people like laughed at when it came out but like look at john cena now yeah. and like look and look at like the way hollywood posi- you know what i mean i'm just yeah. saying it's like you can point to moments where it's you look back and you go like oh yeah that seems silly and maybe the mo- i'm not saying 12 rounds is some great movie but i mean like he wasn't wrong about yeah. like where the business yeah, the, was looking potentially. The, and I think that's the instincts. The instincts are sort of there. Yeah. Are like on display. And I think um, that's all to say, I, I think of our B sides, I mean, cutthroat islands got so much to it that, I mean, I almost, I like, I, I wholeheartedly recommend it. I think it's like, I think it's a two, it's a two hour adventure romp. That's like well worth your time. Langella. I didn't get to talk to him about Langella. I kind of wanted to bring it up. The Langella performance is like great land. Frank Langella even considers it one of his uh, favorite performances he's ever given, which I think is kind of funny. Um, and as we mentioned, the score is, is quite, quite excellent, but yeah, I mean that, that movie I wholeheartedly recommend uh, I mean, Ford Fairlane, kind of harder to find, you know, unless you want, you know, unless you want to track down sort of an interesting curio. I don't know how much that would 100 percent be worth your while. But um, and Born American, you can find on Tubi if, you, if you'd like to track, Currently, that, yeah. track that down as well. But a Cutthroat Island, I wholehearted recommend, I think. Um, Agreed. Agreed. And I, you know, I, I think, you know, certain movies like Cliffhanger, Long Kiss Goodnight, you know, I think they those are properly appraised. I think deep blue sea has its fans. Right. And I think is generally regarded rightly so as being just generally of kind of a fun movie. If, yeah, if, a if, if a little silly, but, um, my hat is like a shark's fin, dude. Yeah, dude. And I think actually I could be wrong. I think he may have even directed that video, but I might that don't, don't quote me on that. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, we hope you enjoyed our talk with Rennie. There's going to be more coming, obviously, uh, as we keep moving forward. We like doing these. Um, uh, yeah, uh, anything, any final housekeeping, Connor, as we kind of wrap this 
this quick one up? Yeah, no. Um, obviously, it was great. It was great to talk to any um, someone who spans just numerous decades and eras, and in a, a particularly a very interesting point in Hollywood where people were getting a lot of money to do a lot of stuff. Um, and Amen. and um, yeah. Other than that, uh, you can as of listening to this. Uh, as you're listening to this, we will have done our. Uh, cinephile game night for June with Isabel Sandoval and uh, Mubi and our good friend Marie Barty. Yes. Yes. So um, please do uh, check that replay out. If, uh, if you have not gotten a chance to watch it yet, Um, it hasn't happened yet as we're recording, but I'm sure it was a lot of fun. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And uh, yeah, other than that, you, uh, Dan, where can people find you? DJ Mac on Twitter, uh, always writing stuff for the film stage, so check me out there. Cool. And uh, like we said as well, The Misfits uh, is out today uh, as you're listening, so you can see that as well. You can find me on Twitter at Scruffy Look, and you can find this podcast on Twitter and Facebook at TFSB Side. If you have any questions or comments or concerns, you can email them to b-side at thefilmstage.com b-s-i-d-e at thefilmstage.com and uh, as usual if you like what you're listening to here please do rate review and subscribe it helps us out a lot and we greatly appreciate it other than that we'll just keep on going forward any which way we can we'll be right back